take your Bibles and turn to Genesis, if you would, please. As you're turning to Genesis 24, I'll tell you another story. I talked to my sister, Michelle, today, who lives in Dallas, and she's an executive in a large company, and every so many months, they have a large meeting. They have a lot of, her company is primarily Indian, from India, and uh, so there's a group every three or four months that meet about 100 ladies, Indian ladies, and my sister is in charge of having one of the, be the main speaker to try to encourage ladies in the job to be brave and bold. And uh, so my sister Michelle is having a testimony of my friend Molly, uh, the lady that started Battle Bags, um, is going to video a testimony about how she was brave and bold and got through her cancer. And my sister Molly is going to be there to talk about it. And all of that's going to be to 100 Indian ladies at a secular employment, and the gospel, gospel will be given through that whole thing. And they're going to mention our New Jersey uh, section of battle bags, which John Mark gave away three battle bags this week. And uh, just praise God for the, uh, I'm thankful for Michelle, if you're listening tonight, for your love for the Lord and reaching people, and just the opportunity we have through battle bags. So those who give to the battle bags here, you're making a difference in people's lives, so I appreciate that. Genesis 24, you're looking at the screen and going, what in the tar is that? It's a Hebrew word, and we're going to say it together. It goes like shal shalet. We'll say it together. Shal shalet. Shal shalet. One more time. Shal shalet. It is a word that means chain, and I'm going to tell you what the significance of that is. It's a word that means change, and there are four times in the four four times in the Old Testament that this is a rabbinical scribe notation. If you were having, if you were to call it a Jewish study Bible, they have marks in there, and these are hundreds of years old. Um, there is a little thing that looks like a lightning bolt. Um, it's a actually most of the time represents a musical note. It is a note that goes up and down, up and down, but never goes anywhere. It's like a, a note that's being played and it can't get moved enough to go to the next note. It just keeps sitting on that one note and playing it over and over again because the idea of it is, is this is a marking that describes uh, someone who's trying to make an important decision and they can't. Um, there's too much uncertainty going on in their lives. It's hard for them. They're weighing out two things. It's like one author said, it's like it's frozen, frozen in motion. It's, it's moving, but it isn't going anywhere. And it describes a tension between people who make that decision. It describes someone who is wrestling on the inside and there's hesitation. Um, they perhaps know what to do, but... We might say today they're struggling at times pulling the trigger. Um, it might be called an existential crisis, truthfully. Um, one author, Jonathan Sachs, says this is what it means when the notation appears. Someone who is called upon to make a choice, listen to this, on which their whole future depends on. They find that they have struggled doing it because they're torn between two alternatives, both of which exercise a powerful sway in their life. But they have to resolve the dilemma one way or the other by having a choice. And in doing so, listen to this, they have to let go 
of an intensely felt temptation or a deeply held conviction. So there are four of them. One of them is in Leviticus, which we're not going to look at tonight. It's not as nearly as important as the other three. And again, it's rare that this little notation, this chastelet, actually takes place. But the three stories that it does appear in are very telling. And they're gonna, I'm going to take them in backwards order. So uh, Genesis 24 is the first one. And it's about Eleazar, who is the servant of Abraham. And if you know anything about that story, you'll know that for Abraham and Sarah, they haven't been able to have an heir to their family for years and years and years and years, decades. And they're still waiting. And in chapter 15, in verses 2 and 3, Abraham tells God, you know, Lord, I haven't been able to have child. And the only one who's the heir of all of his estate is a servant that was born into his family as a servant. And his name is Eleazar. So right now, all the riches and all the things that Abraham has is going to be inherited by someone who's not really part of his family, but rather a servant. And so we pick up that story in Genesis 24. Eleazar is sent on a mission, and he is sent on a mission to find a bride for Isaac. And he is not allowed because Abraham says, I don't want you to go to the Canaanites to find a a wife for my son. I want you to go back and to find one for my family. So he makes the journey back and he's on a mission. And he's on a mission to find a bride for Isaac to continue the line of the Messiah. And in chapter 24, in verse 10, it reads, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, the time when women go out to draw water. Now, here's the verb. And and the shashalet always takes place at the very first word of a sentence. And it takes place over this verb in chapter 12. And he said. And over that in Hebrew is the little lightning bolt, which means Eliezer was sent on a mission, but there's a tension going on inside of him. And for centuries, literally, people have been trying to figure out exactly what that tension was. Why did they put that mark there? Um, And here's some of the reasons or possibilities. And I'm using this first one not so much as a lesson, although there is one, but a paradigm of what you look for in the remaining two because the more powerful lessons are from those two. But let's see what the paradigm is. Some people thought the Eliezer had came to the well and because he was saying, God, if I'm gonna make up a scenario and if you make it happen, then I'll know that this is your will. And so... That was borderline, perhaps, in his mind because they weren't allowed to use omens. You weren't allowed to do things like that and say, God, if this is an omen by you letting up these circumstances occur exactly how I want them to, then I'll read it as your will. And that was very close. So there's, it could be that the tension was that he's borderline, maybe pagan practices about doing what the gods want. And so some people think that that's what was the tension going on in his mind. Someone else says that the tension was the permissibility of this test. And now you're talking about the master's son and finding an heir and having a wife and all that. And he says this one little test about the woman and how 
she feeds the camels water and then feeds him, gives him water, that that test, how could that possibly be important enough of a test to decide such a crucial decision in the life of Abraham and God's story? So some people think that that's what it is. Is this test really appropriate for the kind of decision that was being made? Although we all know from the text that he's posing this test because he wants to see the real character of the woman. When she comes, will she stop what she's doing and help him out and his camels and his thing and invite him over to their house for hospitality? He wants to see if she has that kind of heart and character. Um, another one is, and this is the one that I would probably go along with, it, although I can't prove any of them as any other part. That's why it's been going on in the debate so long. But you have to understand that Eliezer is on a mission and the tension I think he has is he probably has been his master's faithful servant for decades. And if things stayed as they are and Abraham and Sarah have no children, then he will have the estate. And most likely, Eliezer has a daughter. And in his mind, he's wondering if, and he said, in fact, if you read the text back in chapter 15 and also a couple chapters earlier, he asks Abraham before he leaves, and what if the woman is not willing to follow and do those things? So in his mind, in asking that question, there is a real possibility that he'll go there and he really won't find this woman. And some commentators have said that it, maybe it's perhaps because in reality, he really wishes that it was his daughter would be good enough for Abraham's son. And so that they could be married, he would have the estate and things would turn out as he wanted them to be. So in his heart, maybe there's this tension. Do I really want to go after what's best for me? Or do I really put my master in God first? Now that's a, that's a paradigm, isn't it? That, that's a difficulty. That's a tension. And so people look at that and say, hey, perhaps, that's the word he says, perhaps that I won't find this woman. And maybe the tension is, that maybe he doesn't really in his heart. He has mixed feelings about whether he wants it to be fulfilled or not. But you read the story, it does become fulfilled and the tension is resolved and he makes the right choice. Now, as a paradigm, we're gonna take that and look and spend our time in the last two other Shalshalets in Genesis. So if you'll take your, your, your Genesis book and turn to 39.18. And this is Joseph. And he's got an important decision to make. How many, would, how many decisions do you think the average person makes in a day? Take a guess. How many do you think? How many decisions do you think you're going to make before this day's over? I've asked three other people. 200. That's exactly what Pastor Crompton said, which, you know, automatically means you're wrong. No, 200. It's more than 200. How many conscious decisions have you made today you're going to make? How many, how many say a thousand? How many say 5,000? 10,000? The answer is 35,000. 35,000. 500 of mine were about getting more Mountain Dew. But nevertheless, you, you have a lot of important decisions that you've made 35,000 decisions. Now, most of them are mundane. Some of them are important. 
a few of them might be life-changing. Shaw Chalet is about the few decisions that you make in a day, on a certain day, that would change your whole future. That's why there's tension. Joseph, you know all about him. He's the child of Jacob, shepherd. He's youngest, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery. He finds himself in Egypt as the head of the household of one of the most prominent citizens, maybe a government Potiphar. And then he finds himself propositioned by his wife, who is no doubt attractive. And the Bible says in Genesis 39, if you read with me at the end of verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And that's not in there just to give you a description. It's because the temptation was real because he wasn't ugly, right? And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. And here's the Shashalet, the second one in Genesis. But he refused. He refused. And above that is a little lightning mark, the little note that says there was tension going on. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, and you know all the rest of that story. Conflict in Joseph's mind. I wrote down in my notes three conflicts that he might have been going through, maybe all of them. There was a moral conflict because he knows, because he's been taught growing up what is right and wrong sexually and morally. He knows what his family stands for and what he's... And so his family, if he commits fornication or adultery in this case for the the woman, then he will be betraying his family and all that they believe. There is an ethical conflict, and he says so because he's been placed above everybody else in his house, and he's not even Egyptian. He's a slave. But above all the rest of them, he's been elevated, and he understands he has responsibility to Potiphar, and so it would be a betrayal to Potiphar. He also says the most important conflict would be his spiritual conflict because how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Right? So there's a spiritual. So he'd be betraying his family. He'd be betraying Potiphar. He'd be betraying God. And it's an intense temptation. Now, think about it, and I want to have you answer. If you were Joseph, and, and let me tell you this, he went to Egypt when he's 17, So we're talking probably at this point still a teenager. So keep that in your mind. Maybe 19. So? So he's a teenager. This is what we used to say growing up. If you're not my age, you probably don't remember this phrase. Um, Bright lights, big city. You remember that phrase? I mean, he's probably, he's been in a little teeny town his whole life. He's never been to the big city, the world capital. He's never been to a superpower place like that. He's never seen all this. He's, always, he's never been around very many other people other than his family. He's far from home. No one can see him. He has experienced hostility and abuse from his own brothers. And now he's in Potiphar's house. He's elevated himself. He's achieved some things. And I'm guessing that Potiphar's wife isn't exactly ugly either. And I'm sure that being propositioned by her was flattering, if not seductive. What do you think that the tension might be? 
Why would there be tension? Is it just that he refused and it was no issue at all? It was easy for him to say, I mean, have you ever read it that way? Ah, you know, I'm not interested in that at all because I know it's right and wrong and it's a piece of cake. They put the lightning bolt there, I think probably for a good reason because there was a tension. Why do you think there would be tension in his mind? Right? It's not like because you're holy and pure that you'd never feel tension, right? Why do you think that, what would have been the tension for him? What would have made him Stop and think about it for a second. Why do you think that would take place? Why do you think? Okay, good. That's probably the most obvious, right? Because he's a nice-looking guy, and he's young, right? And he's by himself, and there's no one else around, and who's going to know, and all the other things you think when you're a teenager, right? So, I mean, that's the most obviously that... She's probably pretty and he's a man. I mean, right? So, I mean, that's the, probably the obvious one. Why else might it be a temptation? Why do you think he might have to stop and think through it? What else? Right, right. The only thing he, God hasn't given him was the thing he doesn't have. In fact, does he not say that? In this house, there's only one thing my master hasn't given me control over, and that is you. So he could choose to be another Adam and be a taker and say, God gave you all this, and now you want more, and you're just going to take it for yourself. He definitely could have done that. Mm -hmm. Probably came into his mind. What else? Right, right. Position of power. He could have gained more. And by the way, so he, he's a slave. Remember, he's a slave only. Slaves don't ever get to be as high as there already is. So maybe if he has a relationship with her, maybe he'll go higher and make more and do better, right? So it could be used as an advancement. Don't tell me that that never happens in big business today, right? So there are lots of reasons. Let me give you one, that, and then I'd like you to think about how it applies, in his mind, he has to be thinking this. Well, I become an Egyptian because Egyptians are loose morally. They don't have a lot of ethics sexually or any other reason or any other way. Sound familiar in our culture? His question is, I'm here. I don't know when my life will change. Will I become an Egyptian or I will, I, will I stay a Hebrew? Will I stay and, and live according to what I was taught in the past? Will I heed my conscience and the things I know God wants me to do? Who will I be? You know what it is? It's an identity question. How, how in the world do we teach our teenagers, and let me go belong, our elementary students, how do we get them to be Hebrews in an Egyptian culture? How do we teach them that although everyone around you doesn't have your morals, your ethics, your views on sexuality and a whole host of other things, how do we teach them that when their Shah Shalef moments come, that they can refuse like Joseph did? How do we do that? Someone give me an example. What would you do? How do you tell your kids, this is who you are, 24-7, 365, when you're at school when you get on the internet, when you listen to music, when you decide whether you're going to you know, be interested in a boy or a girl someday, 
How do you do it when, you're compo- when everybody around you is Egyptian? How do you begin to teach your children that? And there shall shall left moments. Anyone? Barb? Okay, you are not your own. Finish it. You're not your own. What's the rest of the verse? Yes, you were bought with a price and therefore glorify God in your body, right? Joseph had to make that choice. He was not his own. His body was God's. And we're talking about a teenager all by himself. So you think that it's very difficult in our culture. Can I just stop giving you a commercial? Please, as a parent, don't be excited or you know, satisfied with this. I just want to get my kids through high school and college, and hopefully they won't do anything really, really bad. Folks, we need more expectations than that. Our kids can live as Christians in an American Egyptian culture. But they can, but they need your help. They need to know who they are. The biggest questions in life are, who am I, where am I from, where am I going? Joseph knew all of those things. It didn't mean that temptations didn't come his way. It didn't mean that they were real temptations and that he really had to pause for a second because there were things that he could have got out of it. The Bible never says, read Hebrews, it's not that sin isn't pleasurable. Remember what the Bible says? It's only pleasurable for what? A season. So we can't tell our kids, oh, you won't ever be happy if you get involved. If you do that, if you, get, you do these things, you'll never be happy. No, they can be for a while. They can. But it won't last. And it isn't deep. And we need to keep our kids and tell our kids that on their shalshalep moments, in the moments when they're tempted, that they need to refuse. And here's how. You need to know who you are. How do we teach them to live out who we are? How do we teach our kids on a daily basis who they are? Do you think, do you think that bringing them to church will do it? Well, let me say this. Not do, do it alone. Can I tell you this? It won't. Bring him to church. Don't, you should. Please do. It's not enough. Do you know, parents, listen, you are the number one discipler of your children. Lawrence does a great job and he spends a lot of time with kids, but you know, he's secondary to you. Please don't make him primary. Don't depend on him. Don't think that the outcome of your kid's spiritual life is the youth ministry, as good as it is and impacting as it can be. You are your number one discipler of your kids. You are. So how your kids work and how they think of themselves and how they view themselves and how they view everything because of who they are is something that you will teach them. And listen, you will emulate and be an example and a model and a pattern to them. Do they know and see in you that you are different? And that you live out an identity unlike all those around you. Are you a Hebrew or Egyptian? Second, Shashalet. The last one is chapter 19. Probably the most powerful one, I would guess. Chapter 19, verses 12 through 16. It's the life story of Lot. And in 1912, it says, The men said, these are the angelic visitors, The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here 
sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And it's a word that means to mock with laughter. They weren't, it, it was a joke. He was a joke to them. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And here's the last Shashaleth. But he lingered. This is a choice that will determine his future. Just like Joseph's determined his, Eliezer determined for Isaac, Lot's choice in a midst of tension is going to change the course and directory of his entire life. His wife, his children, himself, everything, everything. Can I run down real quickly? How did he come to the place? Listen, think about it for a second. Angels come to your house. You are lingering about they're going to destroy it, but you can't get yourself to get your family and leave. They have to drag him out. You say, no way. That's impossible. I thought 2 Peter 2 says that Lot's a righteous man. How in the world does he have to have angels drag him out? I mean, they had to not tell him once, more than once, get out. And then he's lingering. And then he wants a compromise to live in a little city or a little place that was in the middle of the place. And God had to stop and not judge that place just so he could accommodate him. How does it come to that? Let me tell you this. You know how it happens? Write it down. And I wrote it. I, I use this term. Identity erosion. Identity erosion. You know what happened? Mark my words. It happened over time. You know how Egypt gets into your children? Do you know how it gets into your marriage? you know how it gets into your life? Over time. You know what erosion is? The surface of the earth is worn away by water and fluids over time. It's the definition in the dictionary. Did you know that erosion is life-threatening? Have you ever seen people, I read numerous articles this week, houses built on the edge of a cliff, erosion, erosion over time, and here's the thing, erosion is invisible. Unless you have a time-lapse time photography, you don't see erosion happening. And over years, years, the foundations of homes that are built on difficult ground that erode collapse. And I watch videos of homes, multiple homes, out of the blue, really seemingly in a moment, collapse and the whole thing goes over the cliff and at times everyone inside. You know what? They didn't see it coming, but it was coming. It was coming every day, every week, every month for years and it ended up taking their lives because erosion is dangerous. When you live near the ocean, here's the thing, beware. When you live near Sodom, beware. When you live in America, beware. Because over time, you can erode your morals, your convictions, 
I've seen it happen. We don't need to go anywhere to church but Sunday morning. Uh, We don't need to do this anymore. We don't have to do this anymore. We can watch this. We can be on the internet. Our kids can play this. They can be on this. They can do all. And and, and we begin to not, I don't want to fight. And we, you know what happens? Over time, all the things that we believe, we held on. we, We, I don't do this anymore. I don't serve. I don't give. And it erodes over time. Genesis 13, verses 10 through 14 Watch the, and we're almost done. It said in verse number 10, and Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. He moved his tent. He separated from Abraham, who represents God's story, and moved away, but he's still in a tent, but he's moving toward Sodom. Chapter 13, verse 10. In contrast, if you read the context, 13, 18, but it said Abraham moved his tent to where God wanted him to be, and he built an altar. You'll never find Lot building an altar because when you move towards Sodom, altars go out the door, the tent door, that is. They moved in opposite directions because their lives are going in opposite directions. Later on, it said, and Lot settled, verse 12, and then it says, Abraham settled. So this is a constant picture of Abraham moving in this direction, Lot moving in this direction, and you can see it in their lives, their choices, their shashalets, their family, their marriages, everything. Chapter 14, verse 12, second point of erosion, Lot dwelt in Sodom. He moved toward it, and now it says he lives there. His identity is being wrapped up in it. He's wanting to be like them, accepted by them. But at the same time, same chapter, next verse, but Abraham stays where he is, and it says Abraham the Hebrew. He still maintains who he is, his covenant with God, his convictions, his beliefs. He's not eroding, but Lot is. And the last time we see it is our chapter, 19.1. It says, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. He moved toward it. He lived in it. Now he's a leader in it. You see, it didn't happen overnight, but it happened one night when the angels came to the door. See, And it says in chapter 19 and verse 2, and the angels came, and, it, and Lot says, come into your servant's House. Small statement, unimportant? I don't think so. Because he's adapted a new life. He doesn't live in tents. He lives in cities. He lives in houses. He doesn't see himself and his identity as a sojourner and a foreigner. He, unlike Abraham, has become a resident, a permanent resident in a city that 1313, this book says, he knew was wicked and had done evil in the sight of God. But he moved there anyways. He made choices for his wife and his family and his children on things he knew were wicked. He knew it. Listen to this. And he thought, you don't ever do this? He thought he could handle it. You know what Proverbs 28.6 says? He who trusts in, trust in his own heart is a fool. And he played the fool. In fact, his sons told him such. He assimilated. He became like it because he wanted to belong there. His wife wanted to belong there because the Bible says when she's escaping, finally, it says, the angel says, and don't look back, and she does. You know what cognitive dissonance is? Cognitive dissonance is when you are in your mind want to have less and less dissonance and conflict in your mind so you avoid those things and you end up looking back. Jesus says in Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. 
Remember, because Luke 9, 62 says, he who puts his hand to the plow and turns back and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. See, here's what Jesus says. Put your hand to the plow, look forward, keep going. Don't look back like she did. Because when you look back, it just tells you exactly where your heart is. Listen, we have to teach our kids, teach them that they belong in a community far different than the world around them. This is where they belong. This is where they belong. And we need to show them that because we're dedicated to making this our community. This is where we belong. And this is where we get our values. And this is where we get our identity. And we can't have them assimilating to think that the best place that they could belong in is a world that wants truthfully nothing to do with them. Lot thought he had it made, can tell you this, but when they came to the door, they said, oh, this guy, this foreigner, this stranger has made himself judge. All the things he thought, he wasn't a foreigner or a stranger anymore to them, and they had made him a judge, and they mocked him for it because he lived there, and he thought he belonged, but in the sense, you know, guess, he really didn't. He really didn't belong there, but he could never pick up on it. See, he hesitated. The Bible says he lingered. Shalshalet, and it changed his life. See, tonight, I don't know where you are. I don't know what important decisions you're making, maybe financial, maybe spiritual, maybe family, maybe otherwise. Maybe you're in a Shalshalet moment. Maybe you aren't now, but you will. When you come to those moments of crisis and you've got two alternative choices, listen to this, Elijah. How long will you, literally in Hebrew, how long will you limp between two opinions? If God is God, Worship him. If Baal is God, then worship him. See, tonight, are you lingering? Are you intention? Are there choices you're making and you're, you're not really sure what to do? Can I tell you this? Look to the Lord. Follow him. Look into his word. For some of us, you're making choices that your whole future may be at stake. Can I tell you, look at the men in scripture and the women in scripture who face those moments and face them with God and his word. Because it could be that everything is at stake. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. Help us. Maybe some here tonight, I don't even know what's going on, but they're facing shalshalet moments. A little lightning bolt over this part of their life this week or this month or this year. I pray for God's people. Give us wisdom. Give us humility. Father, help us to pursue what is right and true in your sight because we are maintaining our identity and we are helping our children to know who they are and by faith to live that out in an Egyptian world in which we live. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to bring honor and glory to you in those shashalet moments in our life that in every day, in every way, we wouldn't just make good decisions. We'd make God decisions, for it's in your name we pray, amen.